you have your Bible, open it to John chapter 6, John 6. We're going to look this morning at two miracles performed by Jesus Christ that are as familiar as they get. If you have been in the Christian church for any length of time, you've, you've no doubt looked at these miracles. If you've grown up in the church, you may even remember back in flannel graph days, these, these miracles. You've, you've seen pictures, depictions of them in some way. Jesus' feeding of the crowd of 5,000 and also his walking on the water out to the disciples. We're going to look at those miracles, verses 1 through 21, at the beginning of chapter 6. The balance of chapter 6, this is sort of a a two-day unfolding. The miracles occur on one day. The rest of chapter 6 is what happens the next day, in which we see Jesus teaching, giving a sermon, if you will, to the crowd, and seeing their response, which is striking in light of what we know. But what I want to do is just read this opening section, the two miracles, John 6, 1 through 21, says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he uh, distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Here's some questions I want you to think about as we walk through this this morning. How did these miracles come about? We're going to think about the circumstances behind these miracles. What is it that Jesus is seeking to teach? What is the purpose of these miracles? And in particular, what is he seeking to teach his disciples. We know the overall purpose for the Gospel of John. We've talked about it a number of occasions. John 20, 31 says that these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life 
in his name. And so the overall purpose of John, this certainly fits within, and that is demonstrating signs that show that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, that he is the Son of God, that he is making bread, that he is calming the sea, that he is doing things that only God can do, and therefore believing in him would bring you life. And in fact, Jesus will, will make that very application when we look at the rest of the chapter next week. So we also know then, in terms of purpose, that at least part of what he's doing here in this feeding of the 5,000 is sort of setting up a, a, a visual cue, um, sort of giving them an illustration that he will then explain to them when he talks about, uh, in, in the rest of that sermon that comes the next day, I am the bread of life. You must take me in. You must eat of me, eat and drink. And so there's that part of this that is significant. But between the feeding that we've just read and the bread of life sermon, there's also this miracle that only the disciples witnessed. Only they had the up-close and personal view of Jesus Christ walking on the water. This is also the miracle in which Peter walks on the water to Jesus. Matthew records that. John chooses not to include that here. Uh, but this is that, that same miracle. There's no particular postscript to that miracle, to the walking on the water. There's no, there's no sort of interpretation or commentary or follow-up that, that sort of unfolds that this is what Jesus was teaching them at this moment, although certainly the obvious is that Jesus is able to calm the sea. Um, that's certainly part of it. But, but I want to suggest to you that there is a lesson here for the disciples, primarily for you and I, by way of being his followers today, that is absolutely crucial. And it is a lesson in learning, in relearning, and then learning again that we desperately need Jesus. We, as those who follow after Jesus Christ, desperately need to depend on Jesus throughout all of life. And that what he's accomplishing in these two miracles will have a profound effect on the disciples in helping them to understand how much they need to rest in him and rely on him. Those sorts of lessons of our desperate need of Jesus often come in times of trial. If you've been a believer for any length of time, Probably the times when you've learned the most profound lessons on depending in Jesus are times that you look back on with some sorrow, at least about the circumstances. There was something that, that happened. There was something you were experiencing that sort of burned that lesson in, that I'm either going to rely on Jesus in this or I'm probably going to make matters worse. Robin and I had a stretch about 15 years ago. It was about a two-year stretch in which my dad died of cancer and then her dad suddenly died, and then I, we had to do a funeral for a dear uncle, and then my brother's wife was diagnosed with cancer, and she passed away within that time. And it, it just felt for us like a season that funerals were just becoming all too common. And, and I can just remember days of just feeling numb and sad and discouraged and just feeling like, oh, when's this just going to stop? Um, Stuart picked up a copy for me this week of a new book that, that's just come out. I've just started reading it. It's called Kiss the Wave. It's a book about suffering. The title uh, should sound intriguing, and the title, as the author explains, is attributed to Charles Spurgeon, who went through a great deal of suffering in his own life. And, and Spurgeon, according to the author, was asked at one point about how he endured all of these trials, and he said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. 
That's easier said than done, let's be honest here. That, that's a hard thing, and yet it is a great truth. Our, our daily lives are filled with kids and bills and work and school and on and on, and, and, and we sort of plug along, and then one day the, the plug gets pulled on some aspect of life. Something goes wrong. Health goes, or job goes, or... Um, car breaks down in a big way or something happens and, and, and suddenly we are just left at that moment with, with any sense of peace and contentment just vanishing, wondering what to do. Does it ever feel like your, your level of dependence on God is, is proportional to your circumstances? When, when circumstances are good, it, it just, it, it's just so easy to, to feel fairly self-sufficient. It's, things are okay, I'm, I'm doing good, life's good, I got this. And then when that sense is just taken away, we, we learn again what dependence looks like. Because we're not insulated from trials. When, when things go wrong, they threaten to overwhelm us like waves. And so all that to say it should not be a surprise to us that our, our kind and sovereign God would orchestrate circumstances in our lives to teach us to be children and to depend on him. That he would bring about circumstances in our lives to teach us to rely on him. And I, I would submit to you that is precisely what Jesus is doing here as he sets the disciples up for both of these miracles. The, it's the background to the miracles that I really want you to think about with me. As you come to chapter 6, the first thing that you may notice is that Jesus is now in Galilee. We left him at the end of chapter 5. He was in Jerusalem having that uh, discourse with the rabbis who had questioned his authority, who had in fact charged him with blasphemy. And Jesus' response to that is, you're accusing me of, of claiming to be equal with God. Well, let me explain that to you. I am in a dependent way, um, but I am equal with God. And then he goes on to give the testimony behind that. So now here we are in Galilee. It also tells us this is a Passover that he is right at the, at the brink of. Um, we know from John's gospel there are three Passovers in the life of Christ. Uh, John is the one who gives us the best chronology. Two, the first and the last, are celebrated in Jerusalem. This is the one that he spends in Galilee, in his home area. And in particular, John says, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so he's in this Galilee region. And the other side, as far as Jewish readers would be concerned, is the eastern side. This is the side that they relate it to for the most part. And so Jesus had gone over to this area. And in fact, it describes it being mountainous or hilly. So we're looking somewhere in there. You see the Sea of Galilee. And, and what we would, uh, the news would commonly refer to as the Golan Heights, it's, it's that sort of hillside kind of area that seems to be being described here, that Jesus goes up into an area and the crowds are following him because they've seen things that he's doing. Verse 2 says there's these large crowds because of the signs that he is doing on the sick. And so they are coming around and the first miracle takes place in front of an enormous crowd. John says 5,000 men, presumably adding women and children to that, were, were probably doubling that number. And so there's roughly 10,000 or more people who are, are, are watching this take place. 
besides the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that all four gospel writers record. They will pick and choose at different points in the life of Jesus. This is one that, that each of the writers sees as significant to describe this account. The other three all tell us that it was late in the day. So presumably this had been a long day of, of teaching and performing miracles, crowd continuing to grow as the day goes on in this sort of remote area. And so Mark and Luke come to Jesus, Mark and Luke report to us that the disciples come to Jesus and they point out what is the obvious. It's late. <laughs> it's getting late in the day. This is a desolate place. You need to send these people on their way. They're just being pragmatic at that point. We're out in a place that's away from the city. You've got people here who are going to be hungry. You've got some who've traveled and are going to need lodging. And so, Jesus, why don't you wrap it up here and tell them to go ahead and, and move along? That's when Jesus responds, as we see in, in verse 5, uh, when he says it, it aims here at Philip. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So here's the disciples saying, Jesus, I, it's getting late. We need to send them away so they can go find food. And Jesus turns back to them and says, well, where can we get food to feed them? Let, let's let them stay and we'll provide for them in some way. In Mark 6.37, it says, Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat to the disciples. Think about how absurd that had to sound to those disciples. I mean, they, they had come doing what was the, the reasonable thing to kind of give Jesus the heads up. And so Philip answers when Jesus essentially says, well, go ahead, feed them. And we see Philip answer in verse 7, and what he says is, Lord, eight months' worth of wages, which is about what 200 denarii is, eight months' worth of wages wouldn't even be enough to feed this whole crowd. They might get just a little bit. We don't have it. We can't do this. This is impossible. And, and you can almost imagine at that moment the sort of, you know, what do you want us to do? And Philip's politely saying, no way. You are now creating a problem that we can't fix. So Mark 6 then fills in for us that Jesus sent his disciples to see how many loaves of bread they could come up with. And in a few minutes, Andrew comes back. And I don't want to imagine here on Andrew's motives, but I, I, I'm not sure that this wasn't just sort of a, um, look, Jesus, this is, this is it. He comes back with five loaves of a fairly cheap kind of bread and two probably pickled or dried fish of some kind that are a boy or a young man's lunch, and, and he holds it out and says, there, that's not even enough for us, much less for this crowd. This is this is that moment when in the business meeting the, the boss comes up with some wild idea of what he wants done and the rest of you are sitting at the table going, who's going to tell him? <laughs> we can't do this. You know, maybe we'll meet and we'll, we'll come back to him with some evidence that says, hey, you know, great idea, but we can't do this. See that? And so that's what, it, what Andrew is trying to, and, and Philip, this is the response at this point to say, no, really. Dismiss the crowd, because we, we cannot do this. This is impossible. All right, hold that thought. Again, put yourself in the, 
in the, the, the thinking of the disciples and how they are looking at this at this moment. And, and fast forward with me a few hours to the evening. Verse 17 says it was dark. The crowd had been fed. They had, in fact, because of what Jesus miraculously went on to do, what we've seen here as John has described it is within the crowd there is this sort of murmuring that this guy is a remarkable miracle worker. This guy might be the one who could make life really good for us. When they refer to him as the prophet, they're essentially following up after Moses. They remember Moses feeding the children of Israel manna in, in the desert. Now they've seen Jesus do this, and so now the, the sense is this could be the second Moses. This could be the guy to free us from Roman rule. This is the guy who could come to deliver us. And so the description here by John is Jesus perceives that there is virtually a revolt at this point to try to grab him and say, be our leader. Take us, you know, set us free and, 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 and lead us with all of this power that you, you've already displayed. So we'll talk more about the crowd reaction next week because that's really the heart of what happens the next day in John 6. But Jesus has walked away from that, has, has dismissed them, and, and so now he is at the shore with his disciples, and he puts them in a boat and sends them out to sea. And Matthew 14, 22 is much more clear about this. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So here is Jesus with his disciples, and we'll remember again, he's over on this side. Capernaum is the highlighted town right there. So he's essentially saying, you go, they're going to go across the northern part of the sea, and I'll see you later. And we're told from um, the, the other passages that Jesus goes back up into the hillside and goes there to pray. The disciples had already been through one storm on the Sea of Galilee. You remember the record of it in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus was in the boat on that one, but he was sleeping, and the seas start churning, and the disciples begin to panic and believe it's all over and crying out, and it's then that they awaken Jesus, and, and he calms the storm. This time, here is Jesus sending them out at night, bidding them farewell, and heading up into the hillside to pray. And they go off onto the lake, and immediately as... as we see here in John 6, it isn't long that they're out in the water, and this strong wind begins to blow. And verse 19 says they, they get maybe three or four miles, which is a good part of the trip, and even then, we're told from the other references, they can't see the land anymore, and so they, they're, they're rowing, and they're trying, and they're moving, and yet they're getting further from the land, and they can't see the end in sight, and the storm is now getting worse. Matthew 14, 24 says they were still a long way from the land being beaten by the waves. The Greek word for beaten is the idea of tortured or tormented. They are in a situation that is just dreadful for the disciples. It is dark, they are at sea, they can't see land, and the storm is getting worse. Think about that. Put yourself in their situation for a moment. It had been a long day. They were tired. They had ministered to this crowd they are engaged in all of the, the serving and the gathering of baskets, so the, they, they were tired, and now they are being battered by this storm, and waves are beginning to crash over the boat, and there is no one there to rescue them. Imagine how scared and utterly hopeless that felt. Imagine that sense of dread. For all the time that a lot of these guys had spent out on the Sea of Galilee, this was now the moment here at night, 
that it was going to be all for naught. I mean, they would be lost. And, and, and they are no doubt beginning to think this is the end. All right, hold that. I want to just take the rest of our time and just look at what Jesus is doing with the disciples here. Because I think there's three threads that run through these two miracles. Three threads that connect these two miracles. First one is, in both of them, Jesus arranged the circumstances. These miracles didn't just happen. Jesus actually arranged the circumstances by, in the first one, looking at the disciples and saying, feed them, guys. <laughs> what are you going to do? What's your plan? We don't have a plan because that's impossible. Nobody has a plan for that, Jesus. We can't do that. Jesus sets them up. Who is it that puts them in the boat and says, see you guys? We'll, we'll meet at Capernaum. And they go out into the storm. Who is it that controls the wind and the waves? I'd say the answer in all of these is Jesus. Jesus is arranging circumstances. In fact, John 6, 6 even says, when it comes to the feeding one, he says to Philip, where are we going to buy bread? And he says it in order to test Philip, for he knows what he's going to do. Jesus is purposeful about this. He is setting up circumstances for the disciples at this moment. And that's the, the second thread, is that the immediate audience for both miracles is the disciples. A lot of people witnessed the, the, the feeding, obviously, and, and we'll again talk about some of their reaction to all of that. And there were also people who the next day realized that something miraculous took place overnight because they had witnessed the fact that Jesus had sent his disciples off and gone away from them. And so now that Jesus was in Capernaum, there was some question as to how he got there and perhaps some, something miraculous had taken place. But it was the disciples who had the front row seat to both of these. It is the disciples who were, who were in that situation where they were watching and seeing. And, and, and that then, I think, is the third thread, is that Jesus, that the circumstances that Jesus arranged for his disciples were meant to put them in a hopeless place. Jesus arranges the circumstances in such a way that those disciples will have no choice but to come to the end of self. In the moments before he performs those two miracles, feeding the crowd and walking on the water, the disciples had no idea what they were going to do. Worse than that. They, they knew they couldn't possibly fix problem A, and as far as B was concerned, they were pretty well convinced they were going to drown, that this, this was the end. So put yourself now in that sort of impossible situation where the boss has said, hey, we've, uh, you know how we emailed out and to all of our customer base and told them that we're having this big event and they're all going to be here today at noon and, and, and nobody catered it. So figure it out. Be about 10,000 here and no, you can't use the company credit card. What's your plan? Well, there is no plan. It's, Bye, I'm done. There's no plan. Put yourself in that situation. Worse than that, you find yourself in a frightening situation where this can this can only go badly. I may not make it through this, whether it's a diagnosis or an accident or something, but something horrible is happening and you don't see escape from it. Maybe it's, maybe it's not life and death, but maybe it's the, the car just broke down totally and, and there, is, there are no funds with which to fix the car or the heating system. There's just nothing. And it's that moment of now what? You've got in these accounts 12 guys strong guys, guys who, 
They were adults. They'd worked their way through lives. They, they understood how to do things, how to fix things. They'd no doubt been in adversity before. And in a matter of hours, Jesus takes and drops them, th these 12 guys into two back-to-back -back situations where they are as helpless as children. Strong, we know what to do, and Jesus proves to them twice, you have no clue, right? There's nothing you can do at this moment. Those miracles certainly affected the, the broader audience, and again, we'll, we'll see some of that next week, but I think for the men closest to Jesus, those two scenes take them from sheer exasperation and fully unable to do what they have just been told to do all the way to the point of hopeless fear and terror because all they see happening is their demise and they are going to drown in the Sea of Galilee. And all of their combined strength, put the board of 12 together and have them think of an idea and there is nothing. They've got nothing between the 12 of them of how they're going to fix either one of these. And in both cases, right when the disciples hit rock bottom, right when they are at the point that we can't do this, Jesus, or we're going to drown, it's at that moment that Jesus Christ performs these miracles. It is Jesus Christ saying to them, okay, guys, now that you understand that you are utterly helpless, now that you see just how weak you are, let me come and rescue you. Let me show you what I can do. And then Jesus fed the crowd. In fact, John says that Jesus begins to perform this miracle with the five bread, five loaves and the two fish, and, and, and he is creating food. And it is enough to satisfy everyone that, to the point that they come back with 12 baskets of leftovers and everyone is full at this point. That is an amazing miracle. Not only does Jesus at this point supply what the disciples couldn't, but he does it in an overflowing measure. The very thing that the disciples said, we can't, this is impossible. Jesus does it in a way that is just abundant. And the crowd is satisfied. Same is true of the lake. When they are completely out of strength, sure that they are doomed, Jesus suddenly appears to save them. Verse 21 says that they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat, they couldn't see the shore a moment ago, was at the land to which they were going. I, I think, and maybe it's reading between the lines, but I... I think you look at the narrative of both miracles and one thing is missing is any suggestion that the disciples cried out for help. Feed them. Can't. Send them away. We can't do it. There's, there, there, you, we don't get the sense that they said, wait a minute, Jesus is here. We, this, this is doable, Jesus, right? Don't see that. We just see sort of that rationalizing kind of now, go ahead and send the crowd away. And when they're in the boat, the presence of Jesus is so far from their minds that when he comes walking up near the boat, what is their first reaction? They are frightened. You would expect at that point, if they had been crying out for Jesus to come and help them, that they would see a figure coming and say, there's Jesus, the one that we've been calling to. And instead, a figure comes next to him. Who else could it possibly be? And they are terrified at that moment, and I think, I think that gives us a glimpse into their minds at that moment, that they weren't crying out for help. 
They were doing what you and I do sometimes in situations like that. How am I going to figure this out? What am I going to do? How am I going to get through this? Are you ever like the disciples? What's your go-to response in situations where, the, where something is, is really starting to go wrong? Anxiety, fear, doubt, anger, withdrawal? <laughs> My wife knows mine. It's go off on the couch and, and just get some food and get my little Yorkie, and pretend that it's all just going to go away, right? You ever do that? I mean, it's just like, I don't want to deal with this. So I'm just going to, I'm going to eat something that puts me in a happy place, and my dog's going to put me in my happy place. And in those moments, how do you react? What's your go-to? What's your response? In Matthew's description of Jesus calming the storm, it says in Matthew 14, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. That, that's what ultimately occurred. I would suggest to you it took two back-to-back amazing displays of divine power so that by the end of the day, the disciples of Jesus were finally starting to get it. We're just, the, the light was just sort of coming out. It's just like it is for all of us. The light rarely just comes on and stays on, and we get the lesson, and we've got it from there on out. The light sort of flickers again, and we're back in our, our place again of being angry and frustrated, and we have to be retaught these things. And here are the disciples being retaught. But I would submit to you that what is happening here is Jesus is changing their hearts. Jesus is beginning to engender in them that faith in Christ is not just knowing, yeah, Jesus is a miracle worker and Jesus is this, or not just knowing a set of facts, but it is beginning to learn that Jesus is to be relied on for everything, that we are to trust him and rest our lives in him, that Jesus is the only one who can save us for eternity, is the only one who can rescue us in, in any of life's circumstances, is the only one who can redeem trials and hardships, the only one who can strengthen us, truly, at times when we just feel like we are completely at the end. That lesson was beginning to take hold. Because the, the rest of John 6, again, we'll, we'll spend more time on it, but it's the next day, chronologically just two consecutive days, and, and, and the general sense we get at the end of day one is kind of the way day two starts, which is the crowd saying, man, if he can feed 10,000 people from five loaves and two fish, he can do anything. That's our man because he can do anything we want. They, they are not unlike the average American's approach to politicians, which is, what can you do for me? I, I mean, I, yeah, that's, that's great that you got your platform. I want to know what it does for me. Do you, do you affect my taxes or my pay or whatever it is? What can you do for me? If you can convince me, then I'll vote for you. And, and as we're going to see next week, Jesus will have none of that. He's not there to, to sort of be this, tell me all your, your wants and your desires, and I'll just sort of magically fulfill them for you. If you are coming to Jesus from a place of thinking that, I've pretty well got life 
sort of figured out. It's not great, but it's okay. And I just need Jesus to just give a little boost every now and then, do a little miracle, help me find my keys at the right time. You know, just do those sorts of little things that Jesus is there for, to just kind of help me out. That one song we were singing before is it was walking, and I, I'm not getting the lyrics exactly right, but I was lost walking in darkness and, and had no idea I was lost. That, that's sort of the mentality of I'm just strolling along, and things are okay, and Jesus would be nice. He's got some, some good benefits. If, if that's the approach, then you don't get it. That's why when we turn the page to the next day, the same crowd that said, let's make him king, the next day remarkably is saying, we want nothing to do with him. Because what Jesus does is he begins to teach them and say, no, you don't need a genie in a bottle. What you need is a savior. Your life is in darkness. You are lost. And you need to take me entirely. You need to, to, to worship me. You need to understand that I am your savior here to rescue you. And John 6.60 says a whole bunch of people who were following Jesus said, ah, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> this isn't what we wanted. And, and they begin to depart. They wanted a savior on their terms. Jesus came to people to say to them, you are hungry and you don't even know it. You're thirsting, you're lost, and you're in darkness. And you need the light. Jesus came for people who would finally come to the end and go, ah, I've got nowhere to go. This is a mess. My life is a mess, and I, I can't fix it. And I am throwing myself to you as Savior to rescue because I've, I've come to realize that there's, there's nothing within me that's going to fix all this. The same people that were cheering for Jesus when he fed them were complaining the next day because the miracle worker that they had wanted, sort of the carnival guy that they wanted, now is telling them that their lives are in desperate shape and they need him as savior. You're hungry, you're thirsty, you're lost. And so John 6.66 says, After Jesus was done teaching, many of his followers turned back and no longer walked with him. They, they had their own idea of what a Jesus should look like and, and, and what he should do and, and what places were out of bounds and, and where he shouldn't get involved in their lives. Just, just fix the stuff that we need you to fix. And so as this crowd now is walking away, and I just want you to flip forward for just a second toward the end of the chapter, because this, this crowd is now leaving. Jesus turns back to the disciples, same ones we've been focusing on in these miracles. And in John 6, 67, it says, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? It's a fair question. Everyone's walking away now. How about you guys? This is, again, just the next day. This is the, the day after the impossible mission that he gave them to do and, and proving how weak they were and then rescuing them with a miracle. This is less than a day after sending them out to sea and, and letting them get bombarded with a storm and then, and then rescuing them. He says, what do you want to do? Verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love Peter's answer. I love that verse, one of my favorites in the New Testament. And it's not because Peter got the right answer. Peter doesn't always get the right answer. It's not because he got the right answer. 
but it's because the answer is coming from a heart that is desperate for Jesus at that moment. It is coming from a heart that has been brought to the edge of itself and is now in desperation saying, Lord, how could we possibly want to go anywhere else? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. It is a heart that was brought to the end of itself and now recognizes that there is nothing apart from Christ. Sure, you can live life and you can go through the motions and you can work and you can make money and you can do all of these things, but, but Peter is speaking from the, the ultimate reality that there is no real life or real hope or real satisfaction. There is no eternal peace. There is no eternal contentment. There is no hope for eternity or forgiveness. There is nothing apart from Jesus. And that's why Peter's saying, Lord... Where else would we go? The only hope for redeeming trials and hardships is you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have undoubtedly walked trials with alongside unbelievers who were going through those situations, and you've, you've known that the only thing you can ultimately hold out is the gospel. Because the, the, the problem when you don't have Christ is... How do you redeem those trials and those hardships? How do you, how do you make sense of them? What, what, what do you get to, 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 to rest in some peace and contentment when, some, when a child dies or when some horrible accident happens? We know this as people who have walked with Christ. You know, the only way is it, it, that we can, are able to, to look at those things differently is because we've got a Savior who can work in the midst of those circumstances to bring glory to himself and peace to his people and, and can minister through those very circumstances to draw us into an even closer relationship to him. And so Peter's remark is to say, Lord, you are everything we need. We found it in you. So how about you? When your faith is tested... And your circumstances are really hard. Maybe it's the marriage. Maybe it's the kids. Maybe it's the job. Maybe it's school. Maybe it's something that just, you just, the natural reaction is to collapse in despair and feel utterly hopeless at that point. Do you collapse in despair or lash out in anger? Or do you fall on your knees and trust that the Sufficient, all-wise, all-kind, sovereign God who is still ruling the universe, even when your world at that moment seems to be spinning out of control, is still very much in control. And those circumstances are not a surprise to him. In fact, he is working in and through those circumstances to call you in dependence, to, to, to rely on himself. Do we lash out? Or do we fall to our knees and cry out and say, Lord, you've, you've brought me to this place. I'm going to trust at this moment that you are sufficient to lead me through this. Jesus Christ orchestrated these circumstances to train his disciples that when hardships and trials, when the impossible came, that they would cry out to him. And that what would go through their minds is, why would we go anywhere else? Lord, to whom else shall we go? He was training them to respond instinctively to say, how in the world do I think I'm sufficient for this? Only Jesus is.
and cry out to him. You and I are no wiser or stronger than those disciples. We need Jesus just as badly as they did. We're no more, 2,000 years later, we're no wiser or more inclined uh, to not need him. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ this morning to save you from your sin, then, then let me first say to you that you are preparing to one day slip from this life and stand in the presence of the holy creator God of the universe and approach him and say, I think I'm okay. I think I did okay. Because that, that's about it at that point. And so I would, I would plead with you this morning that if you're in that place of not trusting in Jesus Christ, that you would surrender to him, that you would trust that Jesus Christ is the Holy One sent from God who gave his life as a ransom for sinners, who stood in your place and died and took the judgment of God that you deserve and fully trust in him. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, and brother, sister, if you are not in the middle of the storm today, Probably you will be this week, and if not this week, I'm willing to say it'll be another month or two, and there will be something. There will be something that will leave you feeling like, I can't believe this. This is impossible. I don't know what to do. And I just want to plead with you and challenge you to cry out to Jesus and to trust that Jesus is sufficient. I want to, I want to plead with you to urge me to do the same. In those moments when, when everything in my heart says, I just am frustrated. I just want to sit on the couch and do nothing and make this all go away. That's when I need brothers and sisters to go, no, no, no. Cry out to Jesus. Is he sufficient? Is he good? Is he kind? Is he sufficient for our weakness to carry us through? Is his grace sufficient? Do we believe that? You can say amen if you believe that. Because that's what we are called to here to cry out for his help. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, a few minutes ago we were singing, there's there's none like you. You are a glorious and mighty Savior. We are thankful for showing us in this account in John and for that matter, all the way through Scripture, ordinary people who struggle with life's circumstances, who are taught truth about the power of God and about the grace and strength of God, and who get in the midst of circumstances where they begin to to falter and, and, and flounder and try to fix it. Lord, thank you for teaching us again and again and again that our response is to be to trust you, to cry out to you, to believe that our circumstances came as no surprise to you, but in fact you are, you are working through them to lead us back to yourself. Pray for my brothers and sisters this week as we encounter those moments, whether they be seemingly impossible tasks or brutal waves, May you find us crying out first to our Savior, seeking his help and strength above all else. Lord, help us to do that, to be like the disciples and to cry out, Lord, where, where else could we possibly go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God.
It's in the name of the one who is our source of eternal life, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.